Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hi there. If you're hopping on to the podcast or the YouTube channel or our website, church website, um, I don't usually start recording the sermon by sharing the call to worship. That's usually just a part of our gathered time. But in this case today, I want to share our call to worship as well. And unless you're driving, I would invite you to try this exercise. This is not an exercise that originates with me. It's been shared by others much wiser. It goes like this. The central prayer of Judaism was called the Shema. And today I want to invite you into a way that the second century rabbi, Judah Hanazi, taught his disciples to pray it. He invited them to cover their eyes with their hands as they recited the prayer. And the idea was that just a recognition, first of all, looking at this world with all of its mess and pain and chaos and struggle can be so hard if you are trying to hold on to God's love and trust God's presence. And so you cover your eyes and you pray the Shema, the central prayer. And while you are praying, God helps change your eyes for this world. And when you uncover your eyes, you see the world as God sees the world. You see creation held together by God's love and a love that stretches beyond the things in this world that God does not desire for you or for creation, for your neighbors. So I want to invite you to try this if you would, to cover your eyes and repeat this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Try that again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you are ready, you can uncover your eyes. There's an African proverb that says, a gazelle wakes up every morning knowing that it will have to run faster than the fastest lion or the slowest gazelle in order to stay alive. A lion wakes up knowing that it will have to run faster than the slowest gazelle in order to stay alive. Whether you are a gazelle or a lion, you wake up every morning knowing that you will have to run faster to stay alive. Run faster. It's kill or be killed, fight or flight. You may not like those terms. I don't like those terms. And yet every day that you wake up, some primitive part of your brain wants to turn on the default mode of assessing threats. It's part of your limbic system. Every day, your brain is constantly assessing threats. It's the way that you watch out for yourself. Insecurity, fear, the need to survive, not knowing how you're going to pay all the bills that keep stacking up, or rental rates that keep going up, or landlords that might flip the script, a house that needs more upkeep and repair than you have in the bank, a body that needs more upkeep and repair than you can keep up with, a family that has crisis after crisis and you don't know how to keep up fighting fires with a bucket full of holes, taxes, immigration papers, permits, scholarships, grants, licenses, on and on. These papers that might be the biggest blessing or they could be the biggest monkey wrench, your own mental health struggles everything that's happening at work and how to keep your head above water, a news cycle that feels dark and overwhelmed by corruption, greed, mistrust, dread, evil, feeling like the world could be on the verge of a collapse or some kind of cataclysmic event, algorithms that push everyone farther and farther into their own echo chamber, difficult relationships, fears of embarrassment, rejection, criticism, people-pleasing, exhaustion, feeling like you're not enough or that you're too much or wondering what other people think of you or wrestling with your own sense of who you are or what you've done with your life or what you should do with the rest of your life. No matter where you go, this pressure can find you. It can find you in the shower, on your morning commute, elbow deep in work, folding laundry, trying to fall asleep. And no matter how much you tell yourself, stop stressing out, stop fixating, stop obsessing, stop worrying, your, your body's still filled with agitation and dread. It's tense. It's on edge. Have you ever experienced this? Most of us don't like the way it feels when our mind is constantly assessing threats and we don't want all of that internal pressure, but how are you supposed to combat it? 
where is the off switch for this default mode in your brain that wakes up and sometimes literally wakes you up assessing threats? How do you slow it down? How do you turn it off? The deeper this pressure takes you into assessing threats and watching out for others, the more your life happens at the expense of others. The deeper you go into threat assessment, the more inward and ingrown you turn, the more you struggle to look beyond yourself. So whether you are a gazelle or a lion, you wake up every morning knowing that you're going to have to run faster to stay alive. Now, you might relate more to the gazelle in that you turn towards some form of escapism. People all around the planet spend their dollars and their energy trying to forget that they exist, trying to forget that anything exists. So your escape might be sleep or addiction to your phone, watching sports, alcohol, pills, pot, workaholism, daydreaming, reading, video games, exercising, porn, YouTube, media, on and on and on. For some people, the escape is the way that they tend to go. Or perhaps you relate more to the lion uh, turning towards some form of control, which isn't self-control, it's controlling others. Your approach is to become aggressive, reactive, manipulative, powerful, bossy, rude, controlling. You try to make yourself bigger and make the world smaller in some way. The truth is, probably most of us are a mix of the gazelle and the lion. In some ways, we tend towards escapism forgetting reality, and in other ways we tend towards controlling reality. These tendencies have a way of spiraling and snowballing, taking you deeper and deeper, making it harder and harder to look beyond yourself. The deeper you go into assessing threats, the more your life happens at the expense of others. Meaning, when you turn inward, in the background, there are people who are no longer receiving the gifts that God gave you for the sake of others. They might be children, youth, people in the community, co-workers, church family, the elderly, friends, refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers, single people, working parents, people in poverty, addicts, people overseas, neighbors, people on the margins. Somewhere there's someone who is not receiving the gifts God gave you for the sake of others. You simply aren't thinking about what you might have to offer to them. So a reflection question or a discussion question. If you are willing Name a way that you relate to the gazelle, which is escaping reality, and a way that you relate to the lion, controlling reality. 
when you move towards these tendencies, how does your life happen at the expense of others? So take a moment and reflect on that. Whether you are a gazelle or a lion, you wake up every morning knowing that you have to run faster to stay alive. And the question is, is there a way out of this vicious cycle? It brings us to our scripture today in the Gospel of Luke, but first, some quick review. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 42, we see Jesus waking up on what we would call it a Monday morning, because it's the end of the Sabbath. And we can imagine Jesus' human brain doing what human brains do, assessing threats. We can imagine his limbic system doing what limbic systems do. I'm under no illusions that would say that Jesus never needed to regulate his body before he made his next move just like we need to regulate our bodies. Jesus had been through a lot in a very short time. If you look back, Jesus had been tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Luke 4, 1 through 13. That right there is a massive experience. And then he faced basically a lynch mob in his hometown of Nazareth, they wanted they wanted to control him they wanted to control the gospel he preached or they were going to reject him and reject his mission they didn't want a year of the lord's favor without a day of the lord's vengeance jesus talked about god's favor extending to despised foreigners and it made his hometown so enraged that they became a mob and attacked him and tried to kill him. To put it in perspective, if someone in Tillamook, Oregon stood up for God's love for immigrants and refugees, and that person experienced a group, say, of white supremacists or what have you, turning into an attempted lynch mob, we would call that experience for that person a trauma. We wouldn't be surprised at all if that person wrestled with some form of PTSD after the experience. So it's no small thing that Jesus went through, losing his sense of home and security, community, safety. This experience didn't only affect Jesus' heart and mind, it affected his limbic system, it affected his body, his sense of fight or flight. To give it another angle, Nearly every person has experienced some version of getting bucked off of the horse. And then you have to overcome the way that your body feels about getting back on the horse. 
the horse that Jesus got bucked off of was the last time that he proclaimed the gospel, the good news to the poor, a lynch mob tried to kill him. And so the question there is, all right, when are we going to hear that word gospel show up again in the story? Because the last time that he went there, people really reacted very badly. So then we moved to Capernaum, and in the community of Capernaum, Jesus encountered people infected and held captive by demons and fevers and sickness. And it's fascinating that the community that was held or captive by these things, they also treated Jesus in that same way. Luke's gospel says they tried to keep him from leaving them. Now, anyone with a sense of claustrophobia can connect with this word, keep, because they have a fear of anyone trying to keep them. That word, uh, it's kateko, keep, is these people had a desire to control Jesus. The image is someone grabs the steering wheel of your ship. And they're going to make it head in a certain direction. It's someone is preventing someone else from doing something by restraining them or hindering them. They're keeping someone within the limits, making them adhere firmly to traditions or beliefs. This is the picture. Nazareth tried to lynch Jesus. Capernaum tried to keep Jesus. Now, what does that do? To your body. If you just went through the trauma of a lynch mob and you need to get back on the gospel horse that bucked you off, but now you have a crowd of people trying to keep you, what happens to your limbic system, to your body, to your sense of threat assessment? Jesus was fully human, made like us in every way, complete with the limbic system, fight or flight, a brain that was ready to be in full threat assessment mode and an inkling to go either to escape or to control others. So how how are you supposed to regulate your body with all of that? Well, it brings us to Luke chapter 4, verse 42. It says, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, They tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Mark's gospel tells this same story this way. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, for you, if you wake up early in the morning and you want to go pray, you could go sit in your living room probably. You could turn on a lamp. Houses in first century Galilee weren't set up quite the same way. It wasn't uncommon for 10 to 20 people to live in a big one-room house. Archaeology, historic records show that 
in ancient towns such as Capernaum, it was likely nearly impossible to find somewhere to be alone. And so notice what Jesus did. He disappeared. He disappeared from the people, from the pressure, the weight, the strain. And this wasn't just a one-off kind of thing. We're going to encounter this again and again in Luke's gospel. Luke 5.16, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, verse 12, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When I see Jesus withdrawing like this in the Gospels, I see a Jesus who was fully human. He needed a way to get his body calmed down and regulated. His limbic system was firing and he needed to find a way to get his body calmed down so that he could stay true to his mission. This is why we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his arrest. Uh, New York University Langone Medical Research Center did a study where they placed members of Alcoholics Anonymous in an MRI scanning machine. And then they took these people in the machine and they showed them drinking-related images. And it stirred up all of their brain's cravings connected to unhealthy coping. Escape, escape, escape. And they could, of course, see this happening on the MRI machine. Then the participants were invited to pray. So guess what the MRI showed? The part of the brain that was previously firing with the cravings and escape, 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 quickly reduced. And instead, the prefrontal cortex began firing, the part of the brain responsible for control and regulation of emotion. Numerous studies have shown this, that prayer calms the limbic system. Now, we look at Jesus and we'd probably like to know, well, what exactly did that prayer time look like out there? Like, I like to imagine specifics of where he is and uh, his hand in the sand and on a flower and um, looking at the sun and the shadow. There's no doubt in my mind that this early morning time of prayer included Jesus expressing his fears, his pain, his sadness, grief, frustration, questions, anger, exhaustion, holding his traumatized body, possibly even real physical bruises from that mob before the Father and the Spirit. But we don't know exactly what happened out there in that solitary place between Jesus and the Spirit and the Father. However, we can look back at exactly what happened the last time that Jesus was praying. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says, As he was praying, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That word, beloved pertains to someone in a very special relationship worthy of love 
dearly loved favorite, prized, valued, the object of one's affections. There's just nothing like being beloved. It's an experience that defies definitions. It's more than words can capture. Award-winning doctor and master psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist Tim Jennings has written a fabulous book. Uh, it's called The God-Shaped Brain, and he explores from a neurological perspective the, the impact of love on our brain, how changing your view of God changes what's going on in your brain and ultimately your entire life. So here's what he writes. He says, here's the bottom line. When fear increases, love, growth, development, and healthy thinking decrease. When love increases, not only does fear decrease, but growth, development, and healthy thinking all improve. Fear and love are inversely proportional. It is in our prefrontal cortex that we experience healthy love, compassion, altruism, empathy, reasoning capacity, judgment, the ability to worship, conscientiousness, morality, and the ability to plan, organize, and problem solve. Whereas fear, insecurity, selfishness, anger, rage, lust, jealousy, envy, and aggression arise from our constantly stimulated limbic system. So are you, are you catching what he's saying there about love? Fear and love are inversely proportional. It's been said, if you feel loved, you could do a thousand things. If you feel rejected, everything becomes a problem. As the Apostle John says, perfect love casts out fear. It's that same word, cast out. It's that same word for casting out demons even. And I can't help but think that this is part of what's happening out there in this solitary place as Jesus prayed. It's the Father and the Spirit whispering to Jesus over and over, You are my beloved. You are my beloved Son. You are beloved. And Jesus' limbic system out there is calming down. His body is regulating from everything he's been through. His prefrontal cortex is beginning to fire as he is praying. And I think this is why when we see Jesus reappear in the story, because he disappears and then he reappears, and he is communicating then a clear sense of who he is and whose he is and for whom his mission is. Uh, the scripture says the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must gospel the kingdom of God. That, that'd be a verb. I'm, I'm going to share the good news to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, I find it no coincidence that it was after getting away from everyone and praying that we have Jesus using this word gospel again 
for the first time since everyone tried to kill him. Remember how we were waiting to see, is Jesus going to get back on that gospel horse that bucked him off? When is he going to proclaim the gospel again after the Nazareth lynch mob? And this is where it happens. This is where he says, I must gospel. He's using that word. It could Sometimes it shows up, uh, there's a root, and then sometimes it shows up as a, a noun or a verb. He says, I must gospel the kingdom of God. This is the first reference to the kingdom of God in Luke. After praying, Jesus was still on track with his mission of establishing a new world order here on earth. The, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the prayer he would later teach his disciples, it wasn't, okay, help me go out to the kingdom of heaven when I die. It was a prayer about a way of life to enter right now. It was much more than when I die. It was, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With the ultimate promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And notice after praying, Jesus went all the way back to the beginning why he was sent. If your limbic system is on hyper alert and your body isn't regulated, it's really hard to slow down. It's really hard to go all the way back to the beginning and to access your why because you are in a reactionary mode, a survival mode, and things spiral. I find it no coincidence that after praying, that's when we see Jesus naming out loud his why. This is why I was sent. When we are in gazelle or lion mode, we struggle to look beyond ourselves. Our trajectory isn't outward. It's inward. It's ingrown. It's escape or control. But notice that after praying, Jesus' trajectory is beyond himself. He is not escaping others. He's not controlling others. He is living his life for the sake of others. And so his trajectory was to other communities. That's what he communicates here. And surprisingly, his trajectory, we see it already crossing borders from Galilee to Judea. And that trajectory would continue. Uh, Acts, that's Luke's second volume, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So back to you, back to your life, back to waking up each day with a brain and a body that want to assess the threats and struggle to stay regulated, no matter how much you want to be regulated. When your body is feeling more and more agitated and dysregulated and your mind is going deeper and deeper into threat assessment and escapes are starting to sound mighty nice, or you're starting to have fantasies about controlling others. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? 
it means to disappear and pray to to get away to dump it all out to God to unload every raw emotion and unfiltered word in groans and journaling or whispering singing shouting muttering crying pounding dump it out and trust prayer to calm your body trust god to calm your body and listen for the voice of god waiting what is it that god is saying to you in this moment of prayer how is the love of god casting out fear within your body in what way do you hear god whispering you are my beloved you are my beloved to follow jesus means to not return to the chaos of this world until you are ready to let the spirit help you see this chaotic world and see yourself through the eyes of the love of god to be in touch with who you are and whose you are and for whom you are living your life hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.